Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today on the show... We have a very interesting category of guests. I don't know if we've had a guest like this before. Uh, The context is I get a lot of emails from people, which probably some of you I really appreciate, uh, telling me how this podcast, or I think most frequently these days, the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, changed how they think about energy and, and more broadly about life. And, and, of course, about environmental issues. And I got one recently from someone named Gowan Joslin, who works in the data center industry, which is very connected to energy. And he was very complimentary of the book and also demonstrated a, a very personal understanding of the role in energy in his life. And I thought it might be interesting to have him on and have a discussion uh, about how to get people to really connect to issues and and ultimately how to build a movement that can bring us in a very positive direction with regard to energy and progress uh, instead of the negative direction that we're in right now. So I'll read you a little bit of his email. Uh, Let's see, what does he say? He says some some very nice things. Here was a guy not much older than myself explaining to people a philosophy that was so foreign but was so bulletproof that I personally could not dispute it. And I think there he's talking about just the perspective of humanism, that once you say that our goal is to maximize human well-being and that your methodology is to look at the full context, not just negatives or, for that matter, not just positives, uh, that it's very hard for somebody to argue with that because... Or the conclusions that that pretty straightforwardly follow from that, even though they're they're counter to the most common conclusions, uh, just because the method is is powerful and and the conclusions are fairly obvious once you apply uh, the method. Then he talks about his career. He says this topic touches home in my career. I work on data centers, specifically hosting some of the most critical applications to the state of California and their mental institutions and prisons. My job is to ensure that we design and execute said design to ensure that infrastructure is implemented the most cost-effective way while ensuring availability and disaster resiliency. Both of these subjects seem to have a few things in common, although implemented differently. Thanks to the moral case, I understand that not only my career, but lives are at stake if we do not have reliable energy. I also understand that if we somehow can reliably power my field with extremely expensive alternatives, Less innovation will occur due to the increased cost to run said power generating, said power generating solutions. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's bad for me. It's worse for the officers, doctors, nurses, and even inmates I help protect. And then he talks about how he's interested in getting out the message to people, and how he uh, he says since since he read the book, there hasn't been a week I haven't debated or shared thoughts from the book. We all have an interest in cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So I thought. It's got to be a great guy to bring on to discuss the issue of advocacy and activism, uh, particularly among young people and to young people, because I think he's uh, 
uh, as, as we record this, it's, it's July 21st. I'm uh, going to be 35 on, on August 1st. Uh, I think he's 26, but so I don't know if I still qualify as, as young, but he definitely qualifies as young. And uh, I thought it would be cool to have him on. And so we will have Gao and Jocelyn on the other side. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Gowan Joslin. Gowan, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. It's good to be here. Now, you work in the field of uh, data centers. You don't work in the oil industry or in a coal mine or, or anything like that. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you become interested in this issue of fossil fuels? Well, actually, it started with um, just random events of watching John Stossel. Um, that was my first kind of introduction to you, actually, and some of the counterarguments to what you hear socially. So, you know, I, I was, I'm 26, I'm raised in the generation that believes that we should feel guilty for the energy we use. And so hearing a counterargument to that kind of got me thinking. And then I actually started reading your book, um, looking up some other, some other sources, and I found that, okay, there's some serious arguments as to why this is actually a good thing. And I just happened to be invo- involved in all of the things that you did and, and also what other people are doing to try to say, wait a second, um, maybe this is a good thing. And it affects my industry greatly because my entire industry runs on the assumption that power is cheap, reliable, and um, easy to get. Um, so to go back, so you mentioned you're, you're 26, so about eight years younger than I am, but, but certainly both in generations where the mainstream tells you that fossil fuels are an addiction that we need to get off of. Um, what in your, and what in your education did you find most compelling about the case against fossil fuels? I would say that the most compelling case, not having all of the information together, was, well, I don't think they've ever made a great case. I think that they've always used the fact that my teachers would say the world is, is going to have a problem because of what we do today. It was kind of the, um, it was who it was coming from more than the information being provided. Um, of course, I was in high school when Al Gore's, uh, documentary came out and that was played probably seven or eight times in all of the classes I took. So we had this huge um, this huge push of an idea that didn't necessarily have any merit and obviously over time has been proven to be false. So what was the spirit in which that movie was presented? Was it presented as this is one man's view? Was it presented as, well, this obviously has a lot of illogical stuff, but maybe there's some truth? What, how is it presented? So from, from only a single teacher that I can remember, was there ever a, a debate afterwards? Um, in most instances, the narrative was, here's somebody who knows far more than we do about a subject, and they're saying we're going to have a huge problem, and it's your generation's uh, it's, it's your generation's obligation to fix this problem. So there never really was much of a debate. And even then, a debate was more or less talking about how are we going to handle the, um, 
you know, the rise in seawaters and, and not having the glaciers and, and, and things like that, it was never a, a debate of, is there even a problem at all, right? Yeah, although, I mean, that gets dicey because often, in a sense, it is legitimate to talk about, well, what would you do? Uh, how big a deal would it be if sea levels rose X amount? And what would you do in that instance? And how does right. that relate to your overall situation in one scenario where you use, uh, where you get to use a lot of energy and then another uh, in which you don't? So, I mean, I'd be impressed if they talked about it seriously. But my, my sense of how they talk about adaptation, which is a term that's generally denigrated, is is in a non-serious non way, sort of like, what is everyone, you know, what do the stranded animals and humans do during Noah's flood? Yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> That's very reminiscent to what I remember. But it's uh, not like, hey, you know, there are countries that practically exist underwater and they seem to be fine. What can we learn from that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, yeah, because I was in... Well, in 2000, 2006 or 2007 is when that came out. So I wasn't even in college uh, anymore. And, and it was, it, so I, I didn't have that. I mean, I, I had in high school instances where teachers would bring up that subject. And, and it was definitely this, this is something established. Uh, the, the way you put it struck me in terms of this is somebody that knows far more than we do. I mean, right. if there's ever a formula for dogmatism it it would be that i mean of course you could take someone on the other side of the issue and say this is someone who knows more than i do so i'm going to obey him but the idea that well he's he's somehow opened his mouth a bunch of times and said words in this field or his eyes have glazed over uh books therefore you just ask him what to do and and take orders that's a little bit of a scary mentality yeah, absolutely. So I I was raised in California and um I'm in Sacramento, California actually. So it's it's definitely I don't know if it's cultural just to the area I'm in um or you know obviously I didn't go to a different high school. So I can't necessarily say that it's it's was just inherent in my high school, but I feel um most of the time when you walk around downtown, when you talk to people, they're all of the general opinion that that we are heading towards some major catastrophe and policy is pushed upon us with that as fact in their minds so how do you think it stands as a reality because there's this interesting disconnect where people talk about it in the most graphic and negative language imaginable you know, this is the worst catastrophe ever Life, everyone's life is going to end, your children and grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't affect their daily behavior in meaningful ways, with, with the exception of, of voting for these different policies. But if, if you seriously thought that, that we needed to reduce CO2 emissions by 80% or 95%, you'd be talking about going to war with China, and you'd be talking about all of these drastic measures that on, on your own terms would be far less drastic than this. You, it wouldn't just be, oh, I'm going to go to Whole Foods and uh, aspire to buy a Tesla one day. 
<laughs> well, I, I, I do. Yeah, I totally agree. So I think that there's socially, in my opinion, and this is just from observation, I'm not an expert, but the, um, but what I see is that there's this huge abstraction layer between what's going on being told by government and what people are actually doing. It feels like we are, we are willing to stand up and say, oh no, you know, uh, climate is changing in a negative way. Someone should do something about this. It's never taking upon the personal responsibility to follow through with that idea. It's more or less saying that someone uh, should be government because I'm unable to do something myself because I still have to drive to work, right? I still need to pay my bills. I like being in a air-conditioned house where I don't um, have, you know, where I have plentiful food. Uh, those kind of things. There, there's very little that you can do to reduce demand, right? <laughs> in, in the long run. So, well, in a sense, I mean, it depends on how seriously you take the problem, and even right. if you take it seriously enough, then then you're much more aggressive uh, about the government. So, there's a couple of points. One is that people do take it; they do take it behaviorally, but they take it. In a in a religious and, and ritualistic way. Mm. So the it, I mentioned Whole Foods and Tesla and Prius and all of these things are all rituals. It's not that somebody calculated that. Well, if we all drive a Tesla, then the sea level won't rise and you know the Maldivians will uh, have their heads above water. And <laughs> if, but if we drive a Tahoe, you know, then it's going to be. It is a, it's not a scientific. Like with science, you use. You're, you're very focused on, on specific goals with specific quantities. And with the exception of there's this 350.org, which is this pseudoscientific quantity, but, but there's no specific action that you need to re restrict yourself this much and everyone else needs to do it this much. And if they're not doing it, it's a problem. And if they do do it, it's a, it's a solution. It's much more, you are bad. Your whole way of life is bad or our whole way of life is bad, uh, particularly with an emphasis on the people who, who sell us the gasoline that we buy. And this, you just need to comply with whatever we say next. And so it's, if it, this law comes up, you gotta vote for that law. And if this, uh, if this new gadget comes out, you've gotta use this new gadget. And if, you're, if we wanna ban this kind of bag, you don't use this kind of bag. But it, it is, it's the worst of all worlds because it's this ritualistic, dogmatic compliance with authorities rather than any sort of uh, clear plan based on on uh, precise thinking that that people understand. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and so in my in my career, that's kind of how things work for me. So I, I design um, software solutions within data centers. So so you know, in the cloud-based realm, we take a stance that you don't make a change unless you have a quantifiable result set, right? I mean, I wouldn't go to, to Facebook's data center and swip, uh, flip a switch on a server because I don't know the outcome of doing so. And so without having those things clearly defined, the best action is to not take any action. Um, until you have a defined problem and a defined solution while also knowing the outcomes of applying that solution.
I wonder how that would apply to something like this, because you, you could say that, let, let's say, an individual knows, quote-unquote, that the biggest concern, the biggest human concern, is the amount of CO2 that's emitted. As a first step, you would imagine he would do fairly significant things to reduce his own. And if you look at other, other movements, for example, like I like using the civil rights movement, where they had the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. Now those are poor, mostly poor people who are choosing not to ride the bus, which is a really big deal. Every day, <laughs> trudging to work miles every day because, because they wanted to stand up against racism. Now this is saying this is the end of the human race. This is a, so you'd, you'd think that there would be a more of a, of a personal conviction about taking an actual stand. And that's, that's one thing that's, that's weird about it is that it's, it's, it's taken very seriously, and yet it's not taken seriously at all. I mean, if it's taken seriously, everyone should be crying all the time. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And, and I think even, even in your book, one of the things that really struck me was the moment where you basically took a step back from your argument and you said, if this were the case, if all of this were true, it's, it's the most brutal tragedy I think we could ever have the fact that we've been able to develop and become so much greater than we are today, but we're going to have to completely change our lifestyle because if this thing were true, it would be devastating. And I think that's, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the situation. It, it's, it's amazing to me. There's some people that I, I work with who are in the same field as myself, and we debate this um, <laughs> pretty much every week at this point. I mean, it, it comes up in some light or the other, and Did you do this before, or has it become since you've become interested in these issues? So I never knew enough to really speak to it. So I'm I'm the type of person that if I don't know anything about it, I'm going to tend to keep my mouth shut and at least absorb information until I can come up with some kind of quantifiable answer. So it was recently. Um, I I actually mentioned that I was reading this great book. People initially, I mean, you'd be surprised at the visceral reaction of somebody. Um, when you say, I'm reading a book that's talking about the morality of fossil fuels. And the very first thing that I get is this, this look of like, that person's getting paid off. <laughs> and it's like, you read the beginning of the book. Right, absolutely. So, so I, will, I will say that. Uh, I actually say, can you, can you please go to uh, moralcaseforfossilfuels.com and read the first chapter, and then let's discuss what your opinion is. Because I feel like I, I've actually gone out of my way to say I feel like you're being um, biased and not being open to any information so nothing I can say can change your mind. Um, so that was a specific person but the other people are, are willing to, to debate and um, you know it's, it's amazing to me that we talk about oh well we should keep the ecology of the world safe and that we shouldn't affect environment and we shouldn't do these things and yet we're, we're the people who are standing up data centers. We're the ones who are, <laughs> who are building <laughs> giant rooms that emit CO2 from the build process of those products to the usage of those products and for five, six, seven years then we're paid again to replace those products and do it all over again. I mean, you know, I, I can't think of anything more dogmatic than that. So Yeah, the ecology of the world doesn't naturally feature data centers. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So, so obviously they're bad, right? I mean, human beings You've creating data centers. displaced all these <laughs> species, and and uh, yeah, who knows what could come of that? I I find that 
over the years, the more I study this issue, the more I become afraid of the natural ecosystem in the yeah. sense of what if I had to live there? Uh, yeah. And and it's I think it's a lot of what when people read my work or when people think through the same issues, they what they start to get over time is just this idea that, wow, nature does not give us a good standard of living. My fear should not be all centered around how can we screw up perfection. It's <laughs> it's, it's much more how do you know how do we make our way in in a world that has all this potential but has also has billions of things trying to kill us. Some right. deliberately. I mean, some you know, not not, you know, not they have a mind, but you know, some some it's their job as a species to try to kill us. And the others are natural forces that are absolutely indifferent to us and would happily or not happily wipe us out with a meteor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think about, you know, the, for instance, I, I, my wife is actually Indian, so I took a trip to India. Um, I was in northern India uh, in the Punjab region. And one of the, I, I think it's really just a limitation of perspective. I think that most people haven't left this country to go to a country that, um, you know, it's not always worse off, but I would say there were definitely parts of India that gave me a huge perspective. I mean, you've got, you've got somebody who's made their career and they have a home, and right next to that home is someone who's literally living in poverty with their hand out. And, um, and they don't have the, the utilities that you would think everyone um, would need to survive in climate and in, um, you know, just the general environment. And I've gone to cities in Punjab and I've been out in countries where there is no power. It's dirt floors, right? And you just, you, you farm and you survive. And that's, that's pretty staggering. If you don't have that perspective, I think it's really hard to give somebody an idea of what it's like to not have a grid. Yeah, yeah, and and well, there's, there's a project underway with CIP, which involves a lot of a lot of cool new stuff. But one, uh, which I, I don't want to fully get into, besides giving that annoying teaser to people. Oh, uh, <laughs> but but uh, one aspect, and this is part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is I, I've just been thinking a lot about what actually is necessary for somebody to become an enthusiast of industrial progress or more broadly uh, human progress and, and what what are the I, I try to reverse engineer my own mind because I feel like I see the world in a certain way and and once I see it that way it's just pretty obvious all this stuff is pretty obvious and part of it is I just have a big context of of the world including things like this is what the this is what ecology is like without us this is this is what the world is like this is what climate is like if we don't master it. This is what environment is like if we don't improve it. This is what resources are like if we don't uh, create or manufacture them. And I found one thing that's that's really helpful is just visual stuff, being able to visualize it, like you going there. And, and in the past years, we've had different contests where people submitted these memes where, I don't know if you've seen any of these, but they would be, be say, I love fossil fuels. And one yeah. one that I like is there's trip to Tahoe before fossil fuels and after fossil fuels. And before fossil <laughs> fuels, it's like this Lewis and Clark or Donner party type thing. And then after, it's just you just drive your Tahoe in in the scenery. And one thing we're working on right now, it should start coming out more in the next couple of weeks, is just 
lots, lots more imagery uh, of, of all different kinds to give people context about the world uh, with industrialization, with industrial progress, and without uh, industrial progress. Because if, if you have that framework, you're, you're going to be afraid of not making progress. You're going to look forward to making progress. And if there are if there are issues or concerns in the process of making progress, your default will not be, well, let's just, let's just stop. Let's just be safe and not do anything. You'd be like, well, that's, that's, you know, there's like a, it's like saying, well, let's be safe and stop when a lion is running after you. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I like driving to work because I didn't have to walk. Right. <laughs> so, Yeah. Um, so in, in part, in part, because I'm thinking on this track of what helps people. So when you, you said you first saw me on Stossel. So what, what struck you about the ideas that got you interested in this or, or that was different from other things you had heard? Well, well, the first thing that was, was striking to me is that, um, there's the counter argument, right? Which is, which is really powerful once you look into it. Um, and the second thing was, the logic that you Wait, sorry, use. Sorry, what do you mean the counter argument? Well, the I'm sorry, the counter argument for how what people believe today versus what you were what what you were intentionally trying to put out there on Stossel, which was, you know, maybe maybe fossil fuels aren't that bad, and and maybe there's a reason why we shouldn't get rid of them, that lives depend on it, and and the thing that really got me was it was generally your arguments were. They didn't. They didn't have fallacy within them, right? I, I watched. Uh, I watched one of your debates with uh, McKibben, and I was. I was kind of upset at the end of it because I felt like um, he wasn't prepared, but I also felt like he didn't have a very good logical chain of information, and it always went from uh, because global warming and then this. You know, and uh, and you always stayed very consistent with your message, and I think your consistency is one of your best strengths. It's the fact that you can sit there and have an argument and be consistent about what it is you're trying to define, and then what it is that you believe. And I I feel like there's an inconsistency, which comes naturally with not having a logical chain of progressive events, um, with what, for instance, McKibben was saying. So. Um. And so, you know, you, you got interested in the topic, obviously, and then uh, part of what prompted you to write us was that you you saw the application to your, your field of, of data center. So how did that discovery process go? So what I, what I realized very shortly after reading the book is that energy is um, mobility uh, in, in this environment, right? It gives us the capability to to build things, it gives us the capability for really anything. I mean, maybe I should have said a second ago, energy is capability, right? Um, I feel that my field is directly affected by how much um, reliable power we have, and not just reliable, but um, it needs to be plentiful, right? We, we talk about today's, uh, the biggest subject in IT right now is the cloud. and what it can provide us. I mean, there's a few commercials that I know that Intel and Microsoft have both put out explaining how we're able to data mine far faster and far cheaper um, for cancer uh, research and things like that because of the fact that we have Azure data centers and, and obviously any real data center um, 
that has the the density to actually um, research that information, and 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 those things would not have been possible without cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So I personally feel that my industry is heavily affected, but it's also um, could be heavily it could be negatively affected if we continue to go down the route of less CO2 just because. So what is your impression of the different claims now by people that, well, our data center is 100% renewable. That's become a popular thing for Apple to do, for Salesforce to do, that kind of thing. So, so my perspective on, on a green data center is that I, I don't actually know how you could get away with that, but um, I, I think there's some places where you could fudge the numbers, right? I mean, no matter what, there was an industry that built the silicon that you soldered your chips to, and those chips were put together and shipped. It's not like we didn't use oil-based um, uh, engines to move this equipment. I, uh, most of them come on diesel trucks. Uh, most data centers don't run off of solar. They're definitely running off the grid. And also, um, most uh, sophisticated data centers also have backup power in case the grid goes out, which is powered by diesel engines. And I don't think there's any scalable solution that would supplement those um, specific technologies. So, so I, don't, I don't know um, what context they're putting on that their data center is green, but an initiative to green in... in in the data center realm to me is fallacious in general. I, 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 I don't understand how that would be possible in today's technological um, level. Yeah, I wrote an article about this called, I think it's called Apple's Energy Accounting Fraud, which mm -hmm. details the particular way in which they do it. But uh, we'll, we'll post that we'll post that link with this show, but it, it's, it's the equivalent of, I use, I use the analogy of basically Tim Cook decides that he wants to be able to call his data set. He wants a hundred percent, you know, solar and wind data center. Uh, but those are unreliables. So it's not going to work. And Al Gore, so it seems like he has to give up, but then Al Gore comes and saves the day and says, no, I'll just, uh, it's like, he does the equivalent of, you know, it's like Tim Cook wants to go across the ocean uh, and not use any oil. And it's like, well, you can't do that. And Al Gore's like, sure you can, because I'll just put a sail on top of your, you know, your giant oil-based ship, and that'll power you, let's say, 5% of the time. And I'll just get all the other passengers to agree that they traveled by oil, and then you can say that you traveled via the wind. <laughs> so that's that's exactly what they do with the data centers. They so just, so right to that context thing again. Right? <laughs> At what scale is this green? <laughs> well, it's 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 just yeah, it's 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 right. It connects. I mean, basically, they don't get their power. They get their power from a grid, and in say North Carolina, you know, the grid has a mix of of primarily nuclear and coal, but they can buy these green credits, uh, yeah. which basically is buying moral superiority from other people to say, oh no, I used the coal and Apple used Apple used the wind, as if this is how a grid uh works. So it is it is really corrupt and and but I think also that the just the lack of appreciation for what an achievement these data centers are and what the leverage is in having the absolute best 
most reliable energy sources and just the obscenity of trying to screw around with throwing all these potential monkey wrenches into the mix and seeing how much you can get away with. Yeah, and um, so so one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about knowing I was coming on the show is what would happen in my field if power went out to my data center today? I mean, let's uh, uh, just kind of a thought experiment I had where I basically said to myself, okay, I came into work, nothing was reachable because the power's out. How would how would that have affected me? Well, first of all, we have systems that are um, like EMR systems uh, that, that run. So those are emergency medical, uh, uh, emergency medical record systems that are built specifically so that if somebody comes into a hospital, um, we know what they're allergic to. Uh, we know what medication they were given. We know all of those things. And without a paper trail, um, those people could be great, you know, they could be negatively affected. What if you didn't happen to have your, your little metal um, bracelet that says, I'm allergic to penicillin, and the first step somebody takes, because you can't tell them anything, is they think that you need penicillin. So uh, there's that. But um, in my industry, a power outage is not like a small thing. That's actually what we call a disaster. Um, and, and people will, will plan around that um, heavily, it's 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 a topic in in design that's called disaster recovery. What happens if this data center is not reachable because a comet hit it? Or in our specific case, what happens if this data center isn't reachable because there isn't any power? And people spend millions a year to to just make sure that their core services are always up. So what are what are the means that they they ensure that degree of reliability? Well, <laughs> of course, it comes back to redundancy. Um, so, so for instance, we have these things called service level agreements, um, and and what that what that essentially is a, is an agreement between the hostee and the and the hoster, the person hosting the the service, that we're going to keep your your core systems up for a percentage of time, and we call that availability. So, for instance, uh, there's this golden rule of the five nines in um, design. That's 99.999% uptime. Um, that, that equates to five minutes and 26 uh, seconds per year. Uh, so, so you can imagine a core system can't be down for more than five minutes a year. That is an extreme, extremely highly available solution. And, and what you would do to ensure that stays um, within the SLA is you would actually go out to another data center that's outside of the um, basically any kind of environmental danger. So for instance, I wouldn't have a data center in California and then have another data center on the fault line of California. I would rather have one in California, maybe one in um, Florida or, or another place, just far enough away so that one natural disaster could not destroy both of both sides. And, um, they would spend tons of money on, on hardware and software solutions to ensure that those two sites are reachable at all times and also um, that the data going to one data center is replicated at near real time um, to the other. So thinking about that kind of thought going into, into the reliability of this, it's just insane is the wrong word. It's worse than insane, but that 
people consider it legitimate to add in the type of potential instability in the situation where you're not at the mercy you know, of a meteor, you're at the mercy of the wind not blowing as much <laughs> as you would like. Yeah, and 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 you know that's a that's to me is unreliable power means we're not going to put anything there. Um, no nobody with a budget and a um, you know a business plan of how they want to implement a solution would ever put equipment in a place that they didn't know power with, power and cooling was always available. Yeah, and I, I find it just these the, the what I call the power liars. Uh, Apple and Salesforce are insofar as they're doing that uh, just <laughs> so so despicable uh, but you know you mentioned in contacting us something that really intrigued me which is just the, the possibility of reaching out to these communities and I've, I've done this a bit with the Silicon Valley community um, Peter Thiel who founded PayPal and was the, the first uh, outside investor in Facebook uh, was nice enough to read my book and, and liked and we did an event which we still need to put online, which is really good, except that they screwed up the sound in the recording, so we'll need to put subtitles. But anyway, um, yeah. reaching out to people like that, uh, you know, people like Mark Andreessen have commented a little bit on it, John Carmack of Oculus. And, uh, so there are people who are into it, but but you had some ideas about how in, in the data center community we might be able to uh, you know, spread the, the you know, Pro, pro human, pro technology, and specifically pro fossil fuel approach. So, uh, what are some ideas you have there? So, some ideas kind of involve getting somebody who, who doesn't realize they're a stakeholder in in fossil fuels to realize that they are. Um, you know, we were talking about the dogma earlier of of people in my field who want the Earth to be at some kind of pristine level that it. There's no, there's no like golden image of the Earth that we all need to return back to. The Earth is constantly changing. At least that's um, something that I believe, and I think that the idea that we need to get back to something is false. And I think that in my field specifically, technology is is your stakehold in power. If you don't have reliable power, then you don't have technology. And all of these people and um, all of these businesses who have invested in um, software, hardware, and, and invested in the data centers don't even know that they're stakeholders in this in this kind of um, energy war, right? We we want uh, we want cheap, plentiful, reliable power. We're being pushed through policy to not have it, and I don't think people in my industry are even aware. Um, you know, I. I, I it's funny because none of the conversations I've had with my colleagues have ever come up until I got interested in it. And even then, it's kind of a, oh, it's kind of fun to discuss this, but it's not necessarily something I'm going to do when I get home. I'm going to go play in my lab instead. And I try to push the idea that, look, this is something that affects er us highly and affects everyone greatly. And it's worth your time to at least get interested in it. So, so in Sacramento, there's a huge amount of um, third parties that contract with the state, that contract with private industry, um, and they basically go out and deploy these solutions. And and I think that if if they were aware that this is important, that this is their livelihood, this is how they they feed their families, and um, and the customer becomes aware of that through their knowledge and understanding, then I think we're all better off. 
um, you know, California has huge policies that push green and push this idea of, of not using fossil fuels and taxing the heck out of oil um, and other fossil fuels, I'm sure. I just know of oil specifically. And, uh, and I think that we need to, to start getting some people who are, who are stakeholders in it to know that this is a big deal. Yeah, that that's definitely, I mean, definitely I find that in getting people involved with a couple of notable exceptions, the, the best formula is usually the combination of grasping the, the general or global moral value of fossil fuels and then also the local value to them that's at stake uh, with them and that, that's what I part of what I take from what you're talking about with the stakeholders right yeah and 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 not to mention um, the technology community is actually um, you know despite social convention is actually very social um, we we all generally have a good idea of who each other are in our in our fields especially by location but um, there's huge conventions uh, for technology uh, VMware throws a convention every year called VMworld. Um, EMC throws a convention called EMC World, which is a, a storage vendor, but those are major players in the game of technology, um, major software entities and hardware entities that every year most of the people in Sacramento and generally most of the people who are in this field um, as a career will go to every year. And um, it, my thought would be that if, if CIP or, or, you know, or even local people who hear this and want to get involved, I would think that the best place to do that are these social forums. It's the place where, you know, if you had a, a stake right next to the newest, greatest technology produced by a vendor, and then right next to it is a booth that explains how this is even possible and why it's important to know that fossil fuel is the key ingredient to making this possible, then I think you'd get a lot more supporters. And, and, and it's, it's the best place I can think of to get um, those stakeholders together. Uh, well, we can contact those conferences and see if they want, they want a speaker who, who can give the alternative view. My sense is that, and this is, this is from now four years of experience, I mean, just with CIP, let alone what I was doing before that, uh, is that it's important, just as it's important to have values that are local to people, it's important to have the concrete actions that people can take that are, that are meaningful. So in this case, and, and often with alternatives, so in this case, it's, I think it's a combination of being aware of the laws already on the books and and certainly the ones proposed and what those specifically will do to this community. I don't think I haven't seen any studies about that. I don't think people are aware of of what it you know what what it could do, what the possible downsides are, what what happens if you look at other countries that have uh, done such things, what it would mean to have four times the electricity cost, which is what Germany has uh, and still has. You know the high, its highest ever coal capacity, you know those kinds of things. But at the same time, putting forward a vision of what we should be doing. So not just this is bad in the status quo. And you, I loved what you said before about the Earth. You know, said you know we don't have to go back to an right. Earth. There's nothing to go back to. I never thought about it quite that way. But that is 
both true and it is in it, it captures their premise that is that, that there is this perfect way sort of, sort of the earth is this stasis and we've screwed th some things up and we kind of need to untie all of those knots and clean up the damage so that we can move back to being noble savages uh, <laughs> on a perfect planet and versus no there's no back there you know it's this completely dynamic state we're part of it uh, in my view the best part certainly the part we should focus on and it's just about figuring out how to go go forward with that that animal uh in as advantageous a manner as, as possible but this is part of why i've been working on a project called uh, the energy liberation plan which is about putting forward a vision of this is what the policy should be so it's not just oh things won't get worse but things could get way better and you know your data center could have electricity that was half the price and twice as reliable and imagine you know imagine what that would mean to have you know your your pick of all these nuclear plants available for baseload power and all of these natural gas plants available for peaking power uh, there's just so much uh, so much upside so my thought with them would be make it make it concrete to them and then show them both give them action to avoid the nightmare and pursue the dream yeah, absolutely. And I, I found it personally liberating um, when I realized that I'm not, I, sh I don't think I should feel guilty, right? I, I love being in my air-conditioned house. I love driving my oil-powered car. Um, I love working in data centers that are cooled and powered by um, fossil fuels majorly, right? 87%. Um, and I think that the people who are in my industry would get that liberation if they knew first of all okay here's what's currently happening like you said the policies um, and these are very technical people right so so I would say be prepared for questions um, be prepared for um, providing explanations and proof which you always have been and that's not anything new um, but these are the people who are going to question these things and if you said oh well this 97 percent of scientists agree will agree on what right um, the trending and things like that are highly um, are highly done in our field. I, we we have to do things that are very similar to saying, well, when is this when is this system busy? Well, it's only busy during these times of these days, but it peaks to this time. We we're all very technical in this field. So so if you start beginning to point out the technicalities of of this false claim, then all of a sudden it it really falls away fast. And I, I think especially in my community in particular, but also providing a plan of this is what it could look like. I, I can't imagine a world where um, where Microsoft had to charge you, you know, four times more what they have to charge you now to go into their cloud services. I don't, I don't think we would even be discussing the cloud if power became that expensive. Um, I don't, I don't actually hear a lot about data centers in Germany right now. And um, again, this is just through observation, not being an expert, but through my observation, most of the ones that exist are in places where power is cheap and um, and plentiful, and and that would not be surprising to me that journey if Germany doesn't have um, a great foundation for data centers for for services. Yeah, that's a great. I'll uh, have Stefan, our lead researcher, and in fact, uh, our lead German, our only German on staff, <laughs> uh, look at uh, look into that. Um, the engineer's point 
is an interesting one because there was some interview I did. Oh, it's one of my, sometimes when you're in this field, you do lots of interviews and then occasionally you just have one that you, you fall in love with narcissistically. And the <laughs> one I'm thinking of, like for me, the Glenn Beck one that I did recently was, was one of those. Think, that was great, by the way. I really enjoyed that one. Thank you. The, the, the one I was thinking of, I, I, can't, I don't know if I'll be able to put the point now as well as I could back then, but engineers, oh, I think, it, you know what? It was just at a table, so I may have to say now, but it's that engine, engineers tend to think of themselves as very logical, hmm. and, but they're incredibly illogical when it comes to thinking about the values and the goals that their engineering serves. Yeah. So, you know, if you say this system is going to work, they'll ask you all sorts of questions. But if you say, well, the goal of the system should be to reduce CO2 by 50%, they're like, okay, let me go figure out how to solve that problem. But if I said, well, like, go give me a, go give me a way to, you know, shorten the lifespan of half the world's population, like go figure out engineering. Presumably you might stop and reflect on whether that was a good goal for your engineering ability uh, to serve. So the idea is that the, the, the first question is always, what is the goal? Because that sets the standard by which we measure uh, success and, and failure. And that in this conflict, they are implicitly accepting the goal of non-impact. That is our goal, the, the standard by which we evaluate everything is have we, are we putting more CO2 in the air or not? And that is a, as a bad thing. And if that's what we're optimizing for, if you're optimizing for that, then you're, you're very much not optimizing uh, for life. So I, I, most engineers who are honest, I find get that point quickly and it's a little bit shocking to them how bad their thinking is. But then, then, then the same analytical abilities they have, once they get clear on standard of value, then they can really think logically. But it is, it is like they have been, they have not been taught to think critically uh, about the goal. The goal is the given, and who is it given by? Well, it's just given by the fad that happens to exist. So it's like all of your logic, all of your ability is ultimately being uh, directed toward you know, some random professor of the humanities whom you would have contempt for because he just can't do calculus. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think you're right. As an, as an engineer myself, um, questioning the premise of why I'm doing something doesn't always occur. Well, it hasn't until uh, a few years ago when I started designing and be getting out of the engineer field, but you're absolutely right. People focus on achieving the goal and not necessarily the outcome of the goal. So that's that to me is, is it, it resonates with me. I've, I've worked with tons of engineers and we have, I have been in situations where people have accepted a wrong solution because they could achieve it. That it there's no other way to put it than that. They, they accepted the fact that this wasn't going to work, but because the agreement between the, the company and the client, uh, we're going to do it anyway. One, one final thought on, on the nature of goals is so one is, is that the, the specific end is not, not thought about or questioned. Another related aspect is that is the acceptance of multiple 
incompatible and disintegrated goals simultaneously, which is usually how it stands. So it's, yeah, we need it to be reliable, and yeah, it needs to be fairly cheap, and yeah, we want to lower CO2 emissions some. And just the kind of thing you would never accept in, in a quote, purely engineering context. Or you know, <laughs> we, have, we have these three objectives and we're not going to, there's no hierarchy to them. And there's no priority to them. You would be, you would be just completely stopped because you, wouldn't, you couldn't optimize if, if you're trying to optimize for these sort of three things and you don't know how they relate. Um, and, and, but that's the kind of vagueness that's guiding uh, a lot of the problems that they have to solve, even if they don't realize it. Like, for instance, that the electricity input is being made more expensive by this kind of uh, vague and contaminated thought process such that their work is becoming less efficient. You mentioned, well, if, if we had 40 cents a, kil a kilowatt hour, like in Germany, you know, that would be a complete a deal breaker. But part of the responsibility of anyone who's operating in a domain is if policy is ruining that domain to speak out publicly and say, hey, look, you know, this policy that you were told was going to be really good for you. Well, it's totally screwing you over in the realm of actually being able to connect with people on the internet and, you know, let alone things like medical records and, and every other thing that, you know, every other thing that is, uh, that is, is used or stored in some sort of, uh, data center. So I, it would be, it'd be fun to talk to that community. Cause I think that, and, and more broadly in my view, Silicon Valley, cause I think that, that they fancy themselves it's a slightly mean way of putting it, but they fancy themselves very scientific and logical, uh, but they don't question the goal. And right. that's if you're going to question one thing and, and get one thing right, it's going to be the goal. Because if you have that clearly in mind, then you can always say, is this is this consistent with it? And, and you can you can course correct, but you can't course correct if, you know, the place on the map you want to get to is hell. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, I think it's funny that you brought up the Silicon Valley because that is known for being the startup area, right? I mean, we can think of only two places in my mind that I think of startups. It's San Francisco, and it's also Silicon Valley. And um, can you imagine how many uh, how many less startups we would have if it was? really unprofitable to utilize a data center or, or, or to power that data center. Um, you know, what if that's the breaking point between the next, I mean, you know, to quote us, an application that I can think of that came up recently and is provides no unique benefit except for the fact you can find a date is Tinder, right? Um, what happens to all those teenage kids that want a left swipe or, or right swipe? Well, <laughs> if if power was more expensive, maybe that technology wouldn't have existed, right? And and we putting in policy that a, artificially inflating a price because it it is being pushed as a moral thing to do hurts those without the funds to utilize that effectively, right? It doesn't. Google's not going to stop powering their data center even if it's five six times more expensive. They may downsize. They may lose um, employees. They may do things like that. They're not going to be so heavily affected that they just will be out of the business. Um, you know, it's it's the people that that are coming up with new ideas. Those are the ones that would be the most affected in my mind. And and Silicon Valley is the place where startups begin, right? So, 
it's funny how that is. Yes, yeah, so it's again about you know figuring out the, the stakeholders, so to speak, and and can admit, educating them and then encouraging them to speak up because often what you find is that it's the, the people who can afford the rich men's toys, you know, the solar panel powered systems and the wind powered systems, or at least the solar and wind parasited systems. You know, they can afford it. Uh, you know, if you have 50 or $100 billion cash in the bank, if you're Google or Apple, uh, they can get away with it, at, at least. I wouldn't say their shareholders should be thrilled with any kind of uh, inefficient action. But it's, right. it's the, the people who are just starting up who, or, or the people who are just, you know, much more on the margin who are being just completely left out as these other companies just completely screw them over. And so it's just a matter of finding them. So I think it's a matter of being aware ourselves of what are the threats uh, and then what are the opportunities and having, having proposals for both sides, but particularly opportunities. And then being able to know exactly how that connects uh, to the people, because the more, the more you can come to them and, and give them specific numbers and specific potential outcomes, I think, uh, the better, because not everyone will will have, I'd say, your level of, uh, uh, your ability to grasp the, the concrete implications of, uh, th that flow from the broader philosophical conflict. Like, not everyone in your field is going to watch Stossel and see an argument and say, <laughs> oh, this totally, I totally get how this is going to, doing the right thing on this could make my world better, and how doing the wrong thing could make it much worse, and I want to get involved. I mean, that is something I very much admire, uh, but I do not bet on it uh, for mass cultural change. Yeah, no, and I, I, I feel like I've become passionate about this, um, and, and it, it's actually disconnected from my work life. I just can't associate the two, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm actually having a, uh, a little girl soon. Uh, my wife is going to deliver here, and I think about what is her future going to be like, and 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 what opportunities what opportunities are she, is she going to be afforded? It's not it's not that I don't agree that her life will be, will be better because we've seen that trend. It's just could it be even better than than what it might be if we stop these policies and and we we allow technology to improve and uh, you know we we allow technologies to compete equilaterally without any kind of, um, you know, it, without any kind of government influence. What, what would happen then? And um, so she's kind of been part of my passion for this is, you know, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I may be 26. I'm technically young in some circles, but I'm not going to be young forever. And, and what is she going to be afforded if, if people are taking things away on purpose? So... Yeah, one of my favorite passages of the book to write was in chapter eight, where I talk about the little, uh, little two-year-old who's now yep. three, uh, and just you know that that thought process and of just what what is that world going to be like, and what are how what you do definitely uh, affected, and it requires much more serious thought than, well, let's you know, let's drive a Prius, and then everything <laughs> everything's uh, going to be fine. Everything. If we just I mean, your kid could be you know in a war. It's yeah, serious. absolutely. I mean, these, these things happen, and and they ha hopefully they happen much less, but that you know that changes things. 
All right, well, we're almost, uh, the hour is almost up, so let me just ask, is there any final words, are there any final words you want to share with listeners? Uh, I think that if people are listening to this, then they're already on the right track. And I think that you're doing a fantastic job at being consistent, at being um, extremely logical. And I think that, well, let's say this. I hope that this is a serious debate for people in the near future. And I hope that it's a, it's a thought of the past for future generations. I hope my daughter doesn't even have to think about what power... Um, the days of when power was being, you know, uh, basically constricted by false premises. And I'm hoping that's the case. Well, except in, in history books as cautionary tales like appeasing Chamberlain. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, okay, I don't know if you want anyone to reach you, but if you do, uh, is there any way they can reach you? Yeah, sure. So, um, so again, I'm a consultant in in Sacramento, California. I, I consult with the state and I also consult for private entities. Um, my email is gowan, G-O-W-A-N, at outlook.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions or, or discuss anything that if I could be of influence, I'd love to be. All right. Well, we'll definitely be in touch. We'll see see what we can do with this community. We'll keep listeners updated. So yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks again to Gowan Joslin for coming on the show. Well, I had lots more thoughts on this, and as did Gowan, it turned out. So we, we ended up talking after the program, and on the next podcast, which we'll post at the same time that we post this podcast, uh, you'll hear a follow-up discussion, which is, which is a pretty extended discussion, and it includes some of my thoughts, my most current thinking on on movements, on how to think about these issues, on how to persuade people. And you'll, you'll see some of those thoughts uh, manifesting themselves in some really cool uh, activities we'll be participating in in the next several months. But uh, I, I really enjoyed this interview. I think the follow-up might even be uh, better than the interview. That often happens in conversations. Fortunately, I had record on. So uh, that, that, was, uh, that, was, that was very fortuitous. Uh, so anyway... Um, Check that out, of course, even if you don't. Make sure to do the usual. Go to industrialprogress.com. Make sure you're signed up for our mailing list. Um, make sure to share the book with people. You can also get that at industrialprogress.com. I just checked on Amazon as of when I'm recording this. It's it's about 14 bucks. So it's basically 50% off the cover price. That's that's pretty exciting because that those are you know that that's really near wholesale price. So you know, if you want to pick up one or two or ten or a hundred uh, and pick it up on Amazon, then and you know get your free Prime or Prime Fresh shipping, definitely go for it. As always, any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com/thepursuitofenergy or facebook.com/i love fossil fuels. Twitter at <coughs> something's. Might be getting sick, unfortunately. Uh, Twitter, at Alex Epstein. Fortunately, we still have plenty of energy, or we still have a lot of energy in the society, so I can still have a very good chance of recovering if I get sick. And, yeah, make sure to listen to the next podcast. Uh, This one was a favorite of mine. That one is even more a favorite of mine. 
and I will talk to all of you soon. We have a couple of guests lined up afterwards, so it looks like we're getting some more momentum to get Power Hour on a, on a weekly or near-weekly basis again. So, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.